1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also Helen Scales. Hello. Hello. Now this week, how something embedded in the side of a whale has shown scientists how long these animals can live for. And that's because this object, conveniently, had a date on it. And believe me, you're going to be surprised when you find out how old it is. Also, how rice is helping doctors to conquer cholera, and how scientists have made a biodegradable food wrapper that you can even eat if you want to. They've made it from milk, and I suppose the only thing I can say about that is, well, way to go.
3: Oh dear. Also this week we're exploring the world of forensics to find out how science can solve crimes. We'll be finding out what your hair says about your diet, how rare plants help to identify the torso in the Thames and here in the studio we've got Dr Trevor Emmett from Anglia Ruskin University who will be explaining to us the basis of forensic science
1: and in Kitchen Science this week we're going to be finding out the answer to the question how fat do you need to be to stop a bullet from injuring your internal organs we've sent our own Ben Vowsler out to the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge he's armed with a high power rifle and a long tube of gelatin and we're going to join him shortly
3: sounds very dangerous so if you've got any questions at all about science or forensics email chris at thenakedscientist.com
4: The Naked Scientist Podcast powered by UK Fast the UK's best hosting provider on the web at UK Fast Dot .net
1: Now, if you are a super sleuth, which is highly appropriate for a show all about the science of forensics, then you'll have noticed that something was missing from the introduction to our programme. We normally put our teaser question in there. Hopefully, the reason why we've omitted it will become clear in just a second or two, because I'm going to talk to Steve Gaskin, who's from Right Angled CSI. They're based in Norwich, and I think I'm right in saying, Steve, that you're the only company in the country at the moment that give people the opportunity to have a real exposure to what goes on at a crime scene in terms of investigating it, how you actually do the techniques you need to find Find out who done it.
5: Yeah, that's absolutely right. We, we specialize in delivering crime scene investigation experiences for children and adults. They're absolutely unique, uh, informative, fun, and they give a real insight into the intriguing world of crime and forensic science. What
1: sorts of things do you get people doing?
5: We get them to do a whole range of things, and it, it, it runs from things like lifting fingerprints, uh, investigating crimes, working as a crime team. We do all sorts of things. We do ballistics. Uh, we look at uh, matching up hairs and fibres. And uh, recently we've just perfected with children uh, the art and science of forensic dentistry.
1: Do you supply the bodies? Uh,
5: no, unfortunately we don't. Um, I'm a former uh, retired police officer and we, we can't use bodies, but uh, we have to use uh, dummies, I'm afraid.
1: No, but so, so no one need to have to worry about bringing along their mother-in-law or something if they want you to investigate what, what happened to her?
5: Absolutely not. We don't want to cause the police any more work. <laughs>
1: Now, you very kindly said that uh, you're willing to donate one of your experiences. If people can, can answer our teaser, Helen's armed with a question that's coming up in a second. What are you willing to give people if they're, if they're the correct first correct person with the answer this week?
5: Well, first of all, we're absolutely delighted to be working with your listeners. And what we're going to do is we're going to offer a really exciting experience. And that is that we will come along, uh, one of our experts will come along to your house or other suitable place, and we will have an experience for up to six people We'll set up a crime scene, and uh, they've actually got to solve it. So unlike a it, we're looking for hard evidence.
1: Sounds absolutely fantastic, Steve. Thank you very, very much. I hope we'll have someone for you if they can answer this week's question, which is, Helen?
3: Right, the question is, when were fingerprints first used to identify people?
1: Now, Helen, you're a marine biologist. Isn't there a bit of controversy about how long whales can live for out there in the in the field?
3: I think so. I mean, the problem is getting hold of them and uh, figuring out a way to age them in the first place. It's a big sea; they're big animals, but it's you know a big space for them to be swimming around in. So uh, actually, getting hold of them is tricky. But yeah, there is there is some debate about it. Yeah,
1: because scientists reckon they've got a massive lead in this area in the recent. Uh, history in the last couple of weeks or so because there's a group of people called the Inupiats and they are native Alaskan fishermen they live up in North Alaska and they're allowed to catch a small number of whales every year for subsistence reasons in other words they can catch whales they're not allowed to do it commercially because of course whaling commercially is banned but they can then catch a small number of whales and distribute the meat amongst members of their villages and when they caught one whale recently as a big bowhead whale up in North Alaska they found embedded in the side of this whale a structure called a bomb lance Now, what's interesting is this was invented to help whalers catch whales in the 1800s and conveniently this one was patented and it had a date on it and they handed this over to scientists and the scientists see the date says 1880 now if you look at the history of whaling whalers wouldn't go for anything under a year old so this must have been a yearling or older this whale which means in 1880 when it, it was initially skewered by this thing which obviously didn't kill it just obviously stuck into it It must have been at least one year old, so that means this whale, when it was caught, was 130
3: that's awesome, so the one that got away told us a lot about how old whales can actually be. Yeah, it's, it's a
1: fantastic. shame it needed to die to do it but <coughs> it's intriguing to think that um, these animals can live that long.
3: It's absolutely fantastic I just think it could be just the tip of the iceberg who knows how old they really can be but um, this week we have some promising news for the fight against the dreadful d- disease cholera because a team of scientists in Japan are developing a new vaccine against, against this disease using their national staple food which is rice. Now cholera continues to be a really huge problem across the developing world, with at least 5,000 people a year and probably an awful lot more dying from the severe dehydration that's caused by chronic diarrhoea, which is unleashed by eating food or water that's been contaminated with the Vibrio cholerae bacteria. Now, fortunately, it's a disease that's really easily treated with clean fluids and antibiotics, but sadly there are still millions of people in the world who just don't have access to that sort of treatment. So now researchers from the University of Tokyo have genetically engineered two strains of domestic rice to contain the CTB gene, which is a major protein Protein in the cholera bacteria and the idea is that by introducing these cholera proteins into the body it will trigger an Im- immune response that protects against future attacks of the disease. Now the scientists have rather nicely called their new rice rice, because cholera is a disease of the mucosal lining of the intestine and they've showed it to, already they've shown it to be effective in preventing cholera in mice.
1: How do you actually get this into your body? Then this um, this vaccine has right. it
3: Unfortunately, it's not as simple as just eating a bowl of rice, this genetically modified rice, because you just wouldn't get the right dosage necessarily. And well, um, how much
1: do you have to eat then?
3: Oh, well no, it will be much too much of a dose that's right. I mean basically what the it can very easily be made into tablets that are swallowed um, and this actually is very important because it gets rid of the need to actually inject a vaccine because using needles can cause other problems like infections and you need to get rid of the needles and so on. And there's one other really great thing about this invention which is that um, it doesn't need to be refrigerated and that's a really great um, aspect for any kind of vaccine that you want to use in developing world. It's wild.
1: stable so you can transport it yeah. easily and it doesn't need to be kept cold. Absolutely,
3: so for at least a year and a half you can just transport it, it can go any where, you know, to any places where there's not necessarily sort of electricity for refrigeration. So herself. are they doing
1: clinical trials on this or have they literally no, got proof of principle? Not yet. What, it's what's just that, pr- not at? So
3: far they've just been trying it on mice. So I guess the next stage, like you say has got to be trying it on people and clinical trials but it does sound really promising. And the other really exciting thing is, the whole point that the reason this works is because the um, the, the protein and also the state, if you just were to swallow a rice grain, it's stable enough that it would pass through your stomach. Um, and it's the difficulty of actually delivering the um, this protein to your intestine which is the problem area for cholera and other diseases like botulism and even anthrax so maybe this technique could be used for these other diseases because it's stable enough to to withstand the acidic and enzymic sort of hugely dangerous environment of your stomach and make it through to the intestine where it's needed so it's pretty exciting really but we know it's an early stage still
1: it's also pretty poignant because one of the symptoms of cholera is what's typically called rice water stools because literally it's called effortless diarrhea what comes out is doesn't Apparently require it any effort and it looks like rice it water. It can be
3: 20 litres that your st- your yeah. intestines just produce this water and it's very dehydrating quite indeed. Amazing, yes.
1: Now, sticking with the uh, subjects of the gut. Um, This is actually quite an interesting story because scientists have found a way to make an edible food wrapper. Now it's not just the edible angle that makes it exciting it's because the food wrapper is entirely biodegradable and it's also made using things that you would naturally find in the body anyway, so it's completely safe. Because people get worried about things like cling film, when you wrap cheese and stuff in in cling film you worry about material from the plastic getting into the food and then you wonder what impact that could have on your body. So this is exciting. It's Peggy Tomasula who's at the Agricultural Research Service in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And uh, she and her colleagues have discovered that you can use carbon dioxide to, at a very high pressure to solubilize or dissolve out like a solvent casein, which is one of the major proteins which is in milk. If you then mix it with some glycerine, or otherwise known as glycerol and a little bit of water and then let it dry, it forms this very thin, water-repellent, shiny film, which you can use to wrap your, f- wrap your food in. Because it's water-repellent, it keeps all the moisture and the taste and the flavour in the food, but because it's made of entirely natural things, you could atten- essentially eat the food plus the wrapper or if you did uh, do what some people do, which is dump the wrapper on the ground, it wouldn't be there for five million years, it, it would break down.
3: Um, But uh, there's other types of packaging we can eat if you really felt that hungry. Can't we eat those kind of corn, isn't it, starch, squishy things that you can pack uh, in boxes and things? Do
1: you normally eat the packaging from boxes? I haven't tried,
3: no, but I've heard that it's basically made out of starch, and so you could uh, if you wanted to. No, you're
1: right. It is made of starch, but the problem is that they're not water-repellent. And as soon as the packaging gets damp, if you've ever put those things you're referring to, they look like giant watsits, don't they? That's right, Yes. They they probably taste better, too. But (laughs) when you get them wet, they just immediately disappear, they fragment. And that's why this is a breakthrough, because it's not only biodegradable, but also repels water, so it means that the food will stay fresh but it's not bad for the environment, which previously you needed some kind of plastic or plastic polymer or oil-derived material to do that.
3: No, absolutely. Any way we can cut down on the amount of plastic that we use, it's it's very important indeed. Um, So my last piece of news is that for the last couple of weeks, politicians from all around the world have been meeting to talk about endangered species and to try and decide whether trade in certain species should be restricted to prevent them from becoming more endangered. Now, every year millions of wild animals and plants are traded as pets, medicines and food. And since 1963, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES, C-I-T-E-S, was set up to regulate the trade in wild species between countries to help protect them from becoming extinct. Now for a long time the trade in many really highly endangered species like tigers and pandas has been completely banned, while other less endangered species can still be traded but under strict regulations and controls. Now every two years members of CITES meet to decide which species should have their trade banned, which should be regulated and which are doing okay so can be traded as much as... Anybody really wants to. Now, this year around 50 species were proposed to be added to CITES for their uh, or for their Level of protection to be upgraded. Some that are already in CITES, which perhaps really need a bit more protection um, to have full ban. And uh, some of these were successful and some of them were a bit less successful this year. And um, One of the species which has been added to the list and that can't be traded anymore is sawfish, which is a bizarre-looking type of fi- a shark with a huge long nose or a rostrum. Have you ever seen one, Chris? Or have you ever seen part of one hanging around? It's swordfish. A saw fish oh, with yes. not swordfish sword no, no, sword I've fish.
1: eaten some swordfish sword they really <laughs> very nice
3: but slightly similar um, in terms of a long spiky nose but these ones, these guys are sharks and people actually cut their noses off and use them as decorations because they think they look quite nice I don't know about that but also in South America the teeth which are sort of spiked around the edge of their noses are used in cockfighting they tie them to the legs of chickens
1: it's sort of like, med- like armour
3: yeah so that's rather nasty but anyway and the trade um, has also been banned in a creature called the slow loris do you know what a slow lorises
1: no I'm intrigued uh, tell me slow
3: lorises are very cute Cute and cuddly primates, which have huge nocturnal eyes, and they look. Are a they bit, slow? They look. Uh, they are actually yes. I don't know why that, If that's why they're called that, but they look a bit like a gremlin before it gets wet. <laughs> they're very cute, um, and they they live in the south the rainforests of Southeast Asia. And but they're kept by some people as pets. And both sawfish and s- slow loris, It's likely that there actually are other problems, such as destruction of their wild habitat and maybe pollution, that are more important than determining their f- in determining their future than just the international trade. But it's hoped that the publicity that they will get through listing on CITES could help raise their profile so that these other problems can also be tackled
1: There was quite a good point which was made recently by scientists in the journal Nature which is they analysed all the records for these trades with CITES and they found that as soon as an animal got uplisted to being protected you, you couldn't trade in it at all because there was a big lag between that happening and the, the fact that they were saying it's endangered. Lots and lots of unscrupulous traders were buying up loads of them before they became illegal so they could legitimately stockpile them and then selling them when the price went up when they were banned because then of course they, they had legitimate stock, but it was worth a lot more. Yeah, no, and they were saying this is sufficient problems. to make a big enough dent in the population that actually it pushed some species potentially over the brink.
3: Yeah, it is There's certainly not a perfect system, but it's all we've got at the moment. And there have been some major failures of some species which really could pro- probably be helped by a listing on CITES, which include a couple of shark species, which you wouldn't think necessarily that they're traded that much. But actually, if you go to your fish and chip shop and have hus or rock cod, it could actually be a type of shark called a spiny dogfish, which is very endangered and uh, just missed going on CITES. So you yeah, you never know. But um, anyway, that was the update on wildlife trade and we shall see um, perhaps possibly what happens in the next two years and which other species might or might not be uh, driven extinct by a hungry... Hopefully the news <laughs> will
1: be good news. Thanks, Helen. Yeah, it's great. The Naked Scientists with Chris and Helen and this week our show is all about the science of forensics. In just a second we'll be finding out about Kew Gardens and uh, also why scientists there are able to solve crime on plants that you can dig out of people's intestines. We'll also be finding out uh, from Ben with his high-powered rifle, how fat you'd need to be in order to prevent a bullet from entering and piercing your inner organs and damaging your body inside. And we'll also be talking to Trevor Emmett, who's from Anglia Ruskin University, about the science of forensics.
4: The Naked Scientists. Supported by The Welcome Trust.
1: Just time to take a quick look at some emails here. I've got an email from Matt Riley, who's listening in Cleethorpe, north-east Lincolnshire. He says, Dear Chris team, I'm a huge fan of your show. I have to listen to it on the podcast, as unfortunately you don't broadcast as far north as Lincolnshire. If I was the Director General of the BBC, I'd put you on at primetime and national, but there you go. Anyway, one niggling thing that's been bugging me for ages is that in your intro jingle, the chap says stripping down science, the naked scientist, when clearly the zip sound effect is zipping up something. I haven't actually noticed this. Should we listen to this?
3: Let's have another go. Yeah, go on. Oh,
1: okay, hang on. Here we go.
3: Is that zipping up? Uh, I don't know, we need a zip. Don't, should we bring a zip in? And uh, <laughs> I haven't got a zip on me. I would
1: volunteer my flies, but I think um, I need. There's a webcam in here. <laughs> no, that's fine,
3: Chris. You, you, keep, <laughs> you keep your flies up. What does everyone at home reckon? Is
1: this zipping up or zipping down? If not, we'll drag Pete Cousins over the coals who helped us to make that uh, little jingle and uh, ask him to sort him <laughs> out the account point. for himself.
3: It's a good point. I've got an email here from Jeremiah Sarange in in Ontario. And I was t- talking a little earlier about um, the vaccine for cholera in rice. And his question is, what is the difference between vaccination and immunisation? And when can one be used over the other? Well, actually, they're the same thing, essentially. It's just two words um, to basically describe the same process. But the reason we use the word vaccination actually comes from the smallpox vaccine from the late... 1700s, when uh, a chap called Jenner actually, you might know the story about how where uh, he used cowpox vaccine uh, to immunate, to basically uh, to immunise people against smallpox. But the cowpox vaccine is called vaccinia, so he vaccinated people, and that's where that word comes from. And immunisation is essentially that is what we are doing, which is introducing, like I described earlier, a part, maybe a protein or a part of the disease, the the the, ba- the bacteria or the virus that you're talking about, that can in uh, prepare your body for when you actually do get that disease and you've kind of uh, your immune system is all all set up and ready to respond to that particular pr- protein so it's the same thing vaccination immunization and inoculation actually is that different as well chris
1: it's pretty much the same. it just means adding something to something so when you inoculate people you're adding a protein or a chemical which you wouldn't see in the body normally into the body so that it learns to recognize that so that when a foreign invader comes along you've then got a head start for your immune system it knows how to recognize it so it doesn't get caught with its pants down if you like
3: Sounds
1: good now, uh, You're talking your pants down This is quite appropriate Dev in Northampton Hi Dr Chris Lots of questions to ask But one I'm always puzzling about Is this Why is it that when I'm nervous And waiting for a big event I always want to go to the loo On the day of my driving test I must have peed about six times In a very short time Before I left the house Hope it's not too delicate a so question yours In scientific matters Dev uh, This is a good question Does so this happen to you?
3: Um, maybe, maybe. No, I can't think now whether it does. Well, you always rush off before the show, don't you? Perhaps it's I'll true. to get a coffee, Helen. Ah, oh, OK, on. OK. No,
1: um, no, no it, it's true. Um, I, think, I was thinking about this earlier, and there's a whole raft of reasons why this probably happens. One of them is that your nervous system, when you're very, very stressed about things, goes into overdrive, and part of the nervous system, called the sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight-or-flight reaction, kicks in. And one of the things it can do is to put your blood pressure up. Now, if you don't normally have high blood pressure, when your blood pressure suddenly goes shooting up, your kidney thinks that you've got too much volume, too much liquid in your blood vessels. So it thinks, right, the way to get the blood pressure down is to produce a bit more urine, and this will actually reduce circulating blood volume. So I think what probably happens is that there's a bit of overproduction of urine because your blood pressure is up for a little while when it's not normally, and this promotes your information and makes you want to to the loo more often plus all your reactions are more keyed up because you're nervous and that's what sympathetic activity does so i think it's probably a combination of factors okay
3: excellent so you know at least next time you know when it happens you know why it's happening
1: now have you ever wondered how fat you'd need to be to stop a bullet before it damaged your internal organs well that's the sort of question that we do think about here at the naked scientist so we've sent our own ben Vowsler off to cambridge university's cavendish
6: labs to find out he's there now hi ben Hello, welcome to Kitchen Science. Today I've come over to Cambridge University's Cavendish Labs and I'm here with Dr David Williamson. Hello. And uh, we wanted to find out how fat you'd need to be to stop a bullet. And it sounds pretty gruesome, but obviously we're not just going to shoot somebody. How are we going to test this out?
4: We're going to use gelatin, the type of gelatin that you might have in your kitchen. But rather than strawberry flavoured or raspberry flavoured, this is going to be plain gelatin, so it's transparent and clear.
6: So, the plan is just to make up a load of jelly and then fire a bullet at it, is that right?
4: That's right. We have a plastic tube that's see through, it's about half a metre long, and we'll fill it up with gelatin, let that set, and uh, we'll fire the bullet through the gelatin. And what sort of gun are we using for this? It's essentially like a large air rifle, it's got a barrel that's three metres long in length. And the air cylinder that we, we charge up with air is a couple of litres in capacity. So we'll charge that up, then we'll let the air go, and that'll push a bullet along the barrel and through our gelatine. The ball bearing that we'll use to simulate a bullet is a 10mm steel.
6: What sort of speeds is this going to come out at?
4: I estimate it's going to come out around about 500 metres per second. Wow! That's approximately about 1,000 miles an hour, so that's really quite quickly.
6: That's really very fascinating. That's faster than the speed of sound.
4: Yeah, that's almost twice as fast as the speed of sound, which is 330 metres per second. So yeah, that's going quite quickly. So why is
6: it important that scientists know how materials like gelatin or, or human fat react to having a bullet thrown through them?
4: Well, I think there are two reasons. There's the case where someone might be shot and they survive, and you need to best understand what kind of wound that might have caused so you can treat it. And the other case, I guess, is, unfortunately, if you have a fatality, you might want to try and reconstruct the situation, infer what kind of weapon was used. That might give you leads to solving the case.
6: Well, we've got everything set up here, and so we have a tube of gelatin, a a three-metre-long barrel. Our projectile is ready. But there's lots of big signs in here saying that we should wear ear protection. So I think it's probably best, and best for our microphones, if we do all of this from outside the room. Will that be okay?
4: I think that's the, the recommended procedure.
6: Okay, well let's go outside. Okay, so we're outside now and we buy a big metal box with two big switches, one says prime and one says fire.
4: So at the moment we're just filling up the main cylinder with that compressed gas that's gonna propel the bullet down our barrel.
6: Okay, so are we ready to fire?
4: Yeah, sure. Three, two, one.
6: That was really loud, and we're the other side of a wall here, so I can't think how loud it must have been in there. Um, I, I don't know what's happened to that gelatin. If you want to hazard a guess as to what's happened, let us know, and we will come back to you and let you know what did happen later on in the show.
1: Thank you very much, Ben. So we'll be heading back to the Cavendish later to actually make the measurements and give you an update on whether or not you're fat enough to prevent a bullet from piercing your internal organs. I've heard from Colin in Ipswich who he reckons the jingle is a zip going up. As the zip goes along the teeth, it causes a bigger bass response so the tone would go down as you unzip. What do you reckon? Uh, Shall we drag the guy who made that jingle for us over the coals? Well, We'll have to wait and see. We'll we'll
2: get him on the programme in the future and we'll ask him.
3: And now it's time to catch up with Bob and Chelsea for this week's science update. Hi, guys.
2: This week for the Naked Scientists, we're going to tell you about some surprising skills held by robots and seeds. I'm going to tell you about the future of the domestic robot. But first, Chelsea has a surprising report.
7: The seeds of the wild wheat plant don't just lie around waiting to be planted. Scientists in Germany and Israel have found that, like some other plants, they actively crawl on the ground and bury themselves. Chemist Rivka Elbaum, then at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, says the wild wheat uses a technique involving its two antenna-like projections called awns. The awns contain two types of cellulose fibers. One contracts when the humidity drops, and the other doesn't.
8: So you can imagine that the passive part is similar to a bone, and then the active part is pulling it like a muscle.
7: As the humidity level fluctuates, the awns flex and extend, muscling the seed along. Elbaum says this mechanism may be used by other plants and could potentially be copied in tiny, man-made machines.
2: Thanks, Chelsea. If robots ever become common household helpers, computer scientist Aaron Edsinger and his colleagues at MIT can take some of the credit. They've designed several generations of robots that are intended to act and respond more like people. The latest is named Domo, a successor to Forerunners called Kismet and COG.
9: The focus was... Domo has been in manipulation, really being
4: able to to do stuff with arms and hands. You know, a robot like Kismet, which was basically, it was a head uh, that could display emotion. Cog had a body and arms, but it really couldn't do much with them. And really, a lot of the advances with Domo have to do with that it can work with a person and that it can do it in someone's home where it's very unstructured, it's very cluttered, it's very difficult to predict. And so the algorithms that run on Domo... Try to take into account a lot of that unpredictability in a way that a lot of robots haven't done yet.
2: For example, Domo can find Dr. Ensiger, take an unfamiliar object from him, and set it down on a nearby shelf. While that's simple to us, it's very complex for a robot, which has to assess the size and the shape of the object, navigate around obstacles, pass the object between its own hands, remember the shelf's location, and figure out when it's steady enough to let go. Taking an object off the shelf is harder still, and that's what Domo's learning now. Eventually, Ed Singer says robots like these may be able to help elderly or disabled people perform household chores.
7: Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll tell you what happens when you mix a baby with a trumpet, so definitely
3: tune in. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald.
2: And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists.
3: Thanks, guys. And if you want to hear more from Bob and Chelsea, you can check out their website, which is www.scienceupdate.com.
2: Anyway, next up now, Sabina
1: Migniewicz went to talk to Dr Hazel Wilkinson this week from Kew Gardens. She was called upon by the police to use her plant identification skills to help with a gruesome case. You might remember it, it was the torso in the Thames in 2001.
0: In 2001, the torso of a boy aged about five was found in the River Thames near Tower Bridge in London. Police believe this was a ritual killing, and much forensic work took place to try and identify the boy and lead the police to his killers. This forensic evidence included taking mineral samples from his bones, which matched those found in a rural area in southwestern Nigeria. Police travelled there to try and obtain further clues, as they think the boy, who they've named Adam, had only been in London for a short time before he was killed. Initial research into the contents of Adam's intestine revealed large amounts of plant matter, So the contents were sent to Dr. Hazel Wilkinson of the Jodrell Laboratory at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew
8: for identification. In May 2003, material recovered from the lower intestine of the little boy, known as Adam, was sent by the police forensic department. Among the plant remains, there were also quartz grains, small particles of gold, small fragments of ground-down bone, And in addition, the police picked up the largest pieces naturally of plant material that they could find. And these are very characteristic of tropical bean
0: seeds. The beans which Adam had been fed as part of the ritual had been ground up in a pestle and mortar, so the fragments in his gut were extremely small. In order for Hazel to be able to identify the beans under a microscope, she needed some whole beans for comparison.
8: Uh, I got a Some calabar beans from our economic botany department, and I had to ask the herbarium for seeds of uh, other beans, Schwarzia, Bobgania, and Cassia. But when it came to the leaf material, unless I got stomata hairs and glands on the specimen, it's extremely difficult to do anything at all. Those are the bits from the underside of the leaf? Yes, the lower surface of the leaf and I was very fortunate in that we had a visitor here from Ibadan in Nigeria, where Adam is believed to have come from, and he brought with him some leaf material from one of the Ibadan markets. One of the leaves he gave me fitted exactly, which was so helpful. One of the leaves I found in Adam material. But it is really a very considerable battle to identify anything
0: at all, Despite the difficulty in identifying the stomach contents, Hazel was
8: able to detect the presence of a couple of significant plants. I feel convinced that a small amount of calabar bean was probably in the uh, meal that Adam had, but one of the most frequently found fragments are those of datura, angel's trumpets. It's um, a member of the Solanaceae, the potato and tomato family. Now, I have bought and also obtained from the herbarium some seeds of datura, ground them up in a pestle and mortar, and tried to compare them with the datura in Adam's gut. And I feel convinced that there is quite a lot of it. Datura is well-known historically for being of a sedative hallucinatory nature, and uh, it's still used for bad purposes
0: today. Hazel needed some clues to help her narrow the search when it came to identifying the rest of the contents. She obtained a book of spells traditionally used in southwestern
8: Nigeria to give her an idea of what other plants might be present. The use of plants in Yoruba society. Loads and loads of wonderful recipes supposed to do all sorts of things. To appease one's spirit counterpart, to send smallpox (laughs) to someone... (laughs) Yes, most peculiar uh, to kill somebody. Of course, I've got a marker in that because I I needed to look through these plants to see if there was anything in here. Hazel's findings helped the police
0: concentrate the investigation into specific channels, which assisted in uncovering a human trafficking ring between Nigeria and the UK. The police have as yet not been able to identify the perpetrators of this crime, but their investigations have further
8: revealed underground sacrificial practices in London. It would seem that Adam's sacrifice was to give somebody power and money. Now, where his his head? We don't know. But we do know that um, the head was considered to give the owner of it, especially in a child, youthfulness, extra brain power, and above all, access to more and more money
1: which suggests that uh, having two heads is sometimes better than one. That was Sabina Miknovich who was talking to Dr Hazel Wilkinson from the Raw Laboratory at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew about how some of the forensic techniques and also a bit of local knowledge can sometimes lead you to some pretty startling conclusions.
3: Yeah, when we're asking you this week um, how old do we think that fingerprinting is in terms of how uh, using it to identify people and on the line right now we have Michael from Huntington. Hi Michael. Hello there. Now you think you've got an idea of uh, how long we've been using fingerprints for. What's your guess at the answer?
5: I think the answer is I think it was in 1892
3: that they were first used. Okay, well, I think we have a general, definitely a general consensus in the studio that, that you're way too recent, actually, and it was much longer than that. Um, and I had little birdie tells me that you study forensic science as well, so <laughs> I'm surprised you got that wrong. But anyway, not to worry, thanks for calling. Would you um, like to have a go at our fact or fiction quiz? Yes,
1: okay. All right, here we go. A hippo pregnancy lasts 16 months, Michael. Fact or fiction? Fact.
3: I'm afraid not. Despite the size of a hippo, it's actually shorter pregnancy than humans in lasts last eight months, although the newborn hippo does weigh 25 to 50 kilograms. i
1: try and redeem yourself on the second um, one of these, Michael. The atoms of a substance are most tightly packed in a liquid form. Is that fact or fiction? That's fiction.
3: That's right. Excellent. No, atoms are most tightly packed in solids, um, much more closely packed in solids than liquids, and the atoms of a gas are spread out completely um, the most of all. So that's great. One out of two. Thanks Thank you very, very much, Michael. Thank
1: you. <laughs> See you. The Naked Scientists with Chris and Helen. It's our forensic show this week. In a second, we'll be talking to Trevor Emmett, who's from Anglia Ruskin University, about how we use forensic science and some of the techniques that he uses to try to do things, including helping the BBC with their Waking the Dead series. Fancy listening to the naked
4: scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm-hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit
1: nakedscientists.com forward slash podcast. So, naked scientists with Chris and Helen, joined now by Trevor Emmett from Anglia Ruskin University. Hello, Trevor. Hi, Chris. Thanks for coming in. Tell us what actually you do, and how do you use science to solve crimes?
2: Forensic
9: science uh, strictly is the use of scientific techniques to solve crime. That's that's the um, formal definition of forensic science. So basically, it's um, any scientific information or technique that we can use for that purpose. The sort of thing we teach at Anglia Ruskin is. Primarily concerned with analytical science, with, with analysing small amounts of evidence collected from the crime scene, We're with DNA, of course, blood fibres, uh, glass, r- residue sh- uh, from gunshots, that sort of thing, but um, any any sort of scientific um technique or knowledge at all really
1: hasn't anglia set up a, a system where you actually stage crimes so that people come in and you take them through how you would investigate uh, a crime scene and, and look and the various things you'd look for well
9: the, the, the question is is what makes forensic science different from other sciences and, and and clearly it's a matter of context it's not about what you're actually doing it's not about using microscopes or chemical analyses it's about collecting evidence and and using that evidence in a in a court of law so the the, the the evidence has to be collected properly. We have to make sure that all, all, all the relevant evidence is collected. We have to make sure that evidence is uh, stored properly, accounted for properly, and then analysed properly at the end. So, so to do that most effectively in a teaching environment, we can only really sort of simulate a crime scene, send the students in to do whatever they have to do. It's not just collecting evidence. It's about securing the crime scene, controlling access, um, qu- you know, all aspects of quality management of the evidence, because if any of these um, steps are compromised, then the you can have the best science in the world, but it's no good in a court of law, and therefore isn't tr- isn't good forensic science. You've
1: been working on authenticating ancient documents as
9: well. Haven't I have, yes. How do you do that? Again, it's it's just it's it's purely um, analytical science. The um... what are the giveaways that
1: what would you be looking for that says this is a genuine
9: old document that you've got in your
1: hands versus something which I made to look old.
9: It's, it's very hard to prove a negative, of course. So what we look for is positive evidence that the document isn't what it purports to be. Um, some some of the work I've been doing with the Fitzwilliam Museum on on ancient Egyptian papyri, of course, if we found on those um, paintings... Um, pigments or dyes which were only invented in the nineteenth century, then straight away the the um, the provenance of that document is called into question.
1: How do you know they were made in the nineteenth century? What's the sort of chemical hallmark that says I'm more recent than this ancient Egyptian one?
9: Oh, w- um, it, it's relatively straightforward for ancient Egyptian pigments. You know, an, an, ancient Egyptian pigments are nearly all um, geological in character. They represent coloured ores and minerals from the surface of the earth. There are some organic ones. I mean, we've we've all heard of imperial purple or Tyrian purple, which is made from uh, sea shells, and there are one or two other other organic ones. But in the main, what organic colours or dyes were available to the ancient Egyptians were very very limited in the 19th century the development of the the chemical industry uh, all sorts of uh, azo dyes and amino dyes were developed and a a very wide range of colours were developed so um, if you find those dyes those materials those compounds didn't exist at all until they were first made in the 19th century have you flushed Um, out any fakes? Um, not, uh, not on the ancient Egyptian material. I have on one or two other items I've looked at. But... What
1: sorts of things have people tried to fake? <laughs> uh,
9: uh, um, they try and fake everything. They try and fake everything. And, and one of the, um, I did. I did some work on some castings, uh, some statues, which which were purportedly um, two thousand years old, and discovered they contained an alloy that, which probably meant they were they were made in the uh, in the nineteenth century. Very very straightforward thing. But how did um, you know that though? Had what was the alloy?
1: Is it just something that people two thousand years ago wouldn't have known would, how to make? Would, wouldn't
9: have been able to make? No, not at all.
1: So what did you have to do? Did you actually drill into these things and uh, get samples out? So, well, because no. that sounds like if they were genuine and two thousand years old, I wouldn't be happy to have you drilling into my. Beautiful statue that I probably paid thousands of pounds for. The
9: um, I I would never be allowed to drill into anything, but from my my geological (laughs) background. You personally, or (laughs) uh, absolutely not? No. The uh, I remember when uh, one of my first discussions with a museum. um, We had a long discussion on the telephone about what they wanted me to do, and then I said, "Well, can you send me?" I thought ten grams of material would be a very reasonable amount, and I could almost hear the uh, conservators at the other end of the phone fainting. And then they said they could send me some drillings, and I I, I thought that I was going to see one of these curly things that come out of your black and Decker when you're drilling into wood or something. But um, I got about three specks of dust, <laughs> and I, I now think that if I if I get um, when I, when I was working in geology, I used to think if I had. Um, half a gram of material, that was a bit bit dodgy for analytical work. Now, if I get a milligram, I think I'm doing pretty well. So you get very, very small amounts. And so how do uh, you actually analyse them, though? Because
1: was it a case with the metal of melting it down and then doing some chemistry on it? I mean, what's the
9: way in which you flush out the chemical fingerprints in, in there? In that particular case, we, I, 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 I talk about a milligram of... Uh, a milligram is about a, about a quarter of a grain of sugar. It's a very small amount of material. Um, I had to develop techniques for handling that small amount of material, very easy to lose it and then basically we dissolved it in acid and then, then, then analysed it in it the way we would analyse any other solution and the results the results were conclusive Yeah,
1: I heard a, a technique that was suggested was people fire x-ray beams into things like the statues yes. you mentioned and the scatter pattern is indicative of what's inside so you don't actually have to harm them and because people are using different forms of metals these days as you've just said compared with historically this can sometimes be a giveaway.
9: Oh, yes, I, I did. Uh, I remember many years ago, I had a colleague who was very interested in looking at Elizabethan methods of lead smelting. And we discovered that some of the artifacts that he, he had actually bought, well, that's always a dead giveaway if you buy anything, <laughs> um, but uh, some of the artifacts he had bought were actually made, actually contained stainless steel. Of course, it was another thing that didn't exist very much before <laughs> the 19th century. So, um, no, the uh, x rays, I mean, you can, if you have a. Um, uh, a statue or something like that that's been cast in bronze, and then that... The way that's made varies with, with period and time and location in the world, and you can X-ray it just like you can X-ray a human body for a broken bone or something like that, and, the, and you can get, gain evidence from that. Another thing that happens when you irradiate material with X-rays is that the, the atoms in the material radiate their own X-rays, their own characteristic X-rays. There's a technique called X-ray fluorescence, and that's another very sensitive way of, of determining the composition of the material. The great advantage of uh, X-ray fluorescence is it's entirely non-destructive, so you don't, you don't have to take samples off the material.
1: I heard that you can even get fingerprints from previously unfingerprintable things using that very technique, because obviously, if people touch something, then they can leave behind traces of sweat, which has got traces of of metal ions in the sweat, and if you zap that with X rays with synchrotronic, you know, highly focused beams yes. of X rays, you can quite literally see the fingerprint flashing up again, but even on things like skin, which previously you wouldn't have been able to see a fingerprint on.
9: Um, I've not actually heard about that. It sounds a bit implausible to me, but then these things often do. I, I, I've certainly seen published techniques where people have looked at documents that have been handled, no, no. No fingerprints at all, apparent. But then, use something called confocal fluorescence microscopy. Have been able to de- to look under the surface of the document and actually see the sort of the, you know the, the ghostly imprint of a fingerprint on a document uh, that's actually not on the surface anymore. The you know the the, the lipids and such like from the fingerprint, the you know, the fatty material, the protonaceous material, have, have soaked into the document. They're no longer on the surface. But this this very powerful technique that's used a lot in the cellular biology, confocal fluorescence microscopy have been able to reveal the fingerprint uh, from the document And talking finally about things leaching into other things um, what
1: about when people try and dispose of bodies and they put bodies in environments like peat bogs where the bodies are very rapidly dissipated or often are and the person uh, you then come along and you can get some samples of peat can you tell if there was a body there even?
9: Um, There are several ways this this has been attempted. It's never, to my mind, never been particularly successful, but you can look for the decomposition products of the human body um, by, chemical, uh, by organic analysis but uh, a new technique which has been developed by colleagues in Northern Ireland is to look for stable isotopes stable isotopes of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen in the groundwater and try and locate bodies by basically using the natural water system streams and, and, and swamps and such like to try and locate the body themselves
1: Thanks, Trevor. And that's Trevor Emmett, who's from Anglia Ruskin University. And we've heard from Connor, who's in Tillingham. He reckons, uh, referring to our bullet and fat uh, item, we'll be going back to the Cavendish and joining Ben shortly to find out the answer. So he reckons you'd need about two feet of fat around your midriff to stop a bullet. And also, we've heard from Paul Marsh, who's in Burwell, and he says you need about five or six inches of fat. Well, I know a few people who've got that, and I wouldn't like to try shooting them. Uh, also, he suggests, Helen, Paul, this is Paul Marsh, he says fingerprints were first used in the 1920s. Sounds a little bit late.
3: I think that's a bit late as well. so keep your answers coming in. the chance is still there.
1: It is a naked scientist with Chris and Helen, and now we're going to find out about hair because people use their hair to make all kinds of bold statements, spiky pink hair or a Mohican or a skinhead look even. It can give you a pretty strong first impression, but you can also learn a hell of a lot more about someone from what's inside their hair, the chemistry. And Azzi Katiri went to meet forensic scientists at Anglia- Ruskin University for a haircut that quite frankly, was a haircut with a difference.
10: We're going to do the whole of the hair rather than sections of the hair. So I'll take it at the, at the bottom of your head. I'll try and cut it in the same region so you're not left with too many spikes. I've come to Anglia
11: Ruskin University at the Department of Forensic Science and Chemistry, and I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Hall, who's a specialist in looking at heavy metal concentrations in hair. will do, and there
10: we go. Okay.
11: Oh, right, so you've got a fair (laughs) amount.
10: A good lump of my hair, fantastic. No, no, it's fine. No, I'll do mine. I think that'll do. There we go.
11: Um, Now, where would contamination of heavy metals come from?
10: Um, Well, they come from a number of exposures, atmospheric exposure, maybe from your food, your drinking water, but all hopefully low levels.
11: Now it's quite interesting with me because I've only actually lived in Cambridge for the
10: past three months and before that I was living in London. I live in Ely and I've lived in Ely for ten years and hopefully we may see a difference between yourself and me living in Ely, yes. Um, What sort of things would you expect to be exposed to in Ely? Traditionally, you'd think that there may be some exposure from farming practices, maybe herbicides. I mean, traditionally, arsenic tends to be used in herbicides. But again, legislation and changes in farming practices, we may not see that. But we may see a difference because you live in a more sort of built-up area. Fantastic. Well, that sounds really exciting.
11: I was also wondering whether you'd be able to tell the difference between somebody's diet, for example. Because I don't eat meat at all. I don't even eat fish. But would my hair show up things that perhaps somebody who has a different diet practice
10: would not show up or the other way around? Um, Actually, I've got a research student who I know is a meat eater. See if we can talk her into taking a bit of hair. Could we please? (laughs) Excellent. Okay,
11: so now that we've got three bits of hair, one from you, one from me and one from Lata, uh, what are we going to do with them then?
10: Well, first, I think we should wash them in a sort of a soap solution, just basically remove any sort of conditioner or you know any hair product. Just going to give these a little stir, and we're going to put them in the sonicator. All I'm going to do now is just decant the soap solution off, and then wash the hair with some deionised water. Then a last wash with some methanol. Dry it in a bit of filter paper and then we should be able to easily cut it into smaller sections and get it into our containers. Mm. I've got your hair in the container now, so I'm just going to add nitric acid and hydrogen peroxide and then pop it in the oven, as they say, and uh, that's it. Just leave them for about four hours to digest. Once they've uh, digested, you've got your metals into solution, which then allows us to do the analysis. Lovely. All right, well, what I'll do is, while we wait for everything to
11: cook, I'll pop across the corridor and have a chat with Dr. Karen Scott.
10: Yes, OK, and I'll see you soon. Yep, excellent. I'll
11: see you in a bit then. Hi,
12: I'm Dr. Karen Scott. I work in the Department of Forensic Science and Chemistry at Anglia Ruskin University, and I'm a forensic toxicologist. So you look at all the components that get into people's hair, but how do they actually get there to start with? Well, basically anything that is ingested into your body is into your bloodstream and our hair grows from components which are retrieved from the bloodstream. As the hair then grows out of the head, the drugs and other substances to melanin within your hair, so something that was there, say, a month ago, a month later will be one centimetre away from the point of start of growth of the hair.
11: What can hair tell you about a person?
12: It can tell you ethnicity. Um, It can tell you which part of the body it's been taken from. It can't tell you whether the donor's male or female, unless you go down the DNA route can give you an indication, obviously, if they've died or treated their hair in any way. And also it can tell us if they've ingested drugs in the past. So there's lots of different things that we can tell from the hair sample.
11: And Dr Sarah Hall is actually showing me how she can get um, heavy metal exposures from hair samples. Yes,
12: so that will give
11: you an idea of things like diet. Most people, when they think of
12: forensics, they're thinking, you know, crimes being committed... Maybe somebody's been poisoned um, or someone's been taking drugs, but we can also look at the sort of environmental effects in terms of exposure to chemicals which we
11: shouldn't be being exposed to. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, Dr Hall, you've been looking at these samples and you've got the analysis, so
10: can we have a look and see what you've got? I have to say we have no cadmium or lead, but Lata had quite an unusual high concentration of nickel, However, she does tell me that her her diet is based on a lot of pulses and lentils, and uh, Nicolée's found in that sort of food. But was there anything to differentiate her meat-eating diet with our vegetarian diet? Well, I tried to look at that. So I was looking at iron, because I thought, well, it'd be rich in meat and liver. And zinc is quite a lot found in meat, shellfish, dairy foods and cereals. But it doesn't really show in the results much difference between the meat eaters and vegetarians, I'm afraid. So what about the phosphates? Did we find anything
11: that was different between the three of us um, that perhaps indicated the
10: levels that you might be exposed to in Ely? No, actually I had a lower phosphate level than Lata and yourself. In fact, Lata had a higher phosphorus level than both of us but it might be because of a diet because there's a fair amount of phosphorus in red meat and fish so that might be the difference between the vegetarian and meat eaters. What else has been interesting? Um, The only thing there was a slight increase on was copper and again Lata had a higher copper level than we had and copper is found in shellfish and offal. I mean Lata tells me she doesn't eat too much shellfish but I think she eats fair amounts of red meat
11: and maybe offal I think you mentioned that Lata has um, Asian background, is that right? That's correct, yes, yeah. And I know that some Asian families use copper to serve food on or even cook food in. Um, Would that have something to do
10: with it? Well, it could do, because a lot of lead pollution years ago came from cooking implements and drinking vessels that were actually made of lead compounds, so yes, that could be true. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating.
11: And I'm really thrilled that I'm quite healthy and I can carry on with my healthy vegetarian diet. (laughs) Thank you.
1: And uh, don't worry, Aziz's hair has kind of grown back. It doesn't look quite as tragic as it did earlier in the week so that's good that was Azzy Katiri talking with Sarah Hall and Karen Scott finding out what's in her hair now it's time for question of the week and in last week's question of the week we got an expert to dispel the myth that we only use 10% of our brain and we asked why moths fly towards light bulbs um, any last minute emails on this one well I have heard from a guy called Templeton who seems to suggest that uh, it's because they're thinking that the, that the light bulb is the moon and they get confused because they try and navigate by the moon and this causes them to go in circles Anyway, here's Sabina with actually what we think is the answer this week.
0: Hello, welcome to Question of the Week. This week we're looking at insects tripping the light fantastic. Here's Jeff with the question.
4: I'm Jeff Sweetwood from Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, my question is uh, why are bugs attracted to light?
0: We've had several emails regarding moths in the moon. Tim from Tennessee thinks their reproductive cycles follow the lunar calendar and they're mistaking artificial lights for a full moon. Peter from Hawaii also wrote in saying that moths use the moon as a compass. They keep it in their field of view to help them find their way at night. But again, they confuse our electric lights for the moon. So, are we confusing the moths with our light bulbs? Or is the lunar light theory an urban myth? Here to illuminate is Cambridge University's Dr Mike Majeris.
13: Well, after what's the difference between a butterfly and a moth, as a moth expert, this is the second most common question I've ever been asked, and I always have to say, I just don't know. Now, we have various hypotheses. The most common is that they fly at an angle to the moon to keep them going in a straight line. And when there is a point source of light... The moon is very far away, but when there's a light near, to keep at the same angle all the time, they have to keep changing direction, and people say they spiral in on the light. If that were the case, I run moth traps, which is a a mercury vapour light, and can collect something, sometimes 30,000 moths in a night, but you'd expect them to all come in on spirals, and they don't. They come straight in, in straight lines, all sorts of things. You'd also have to say, why do they sit on a window of a lighted kitchen or something like that. Now, if they were doing this, they would just fly past it. They really wouldn't sit there and stop. So, although there are hypotheses, I just am not convinced by any of them. And my own feeling is we simply don't know why moths are attracted to light.
0: There you have it. Although the experts haven't quite figured out why insects are attracted to light, they're probably not confusing man-made lights with the moon. Perhaps they're brighter than we gave them credit for. This is the wonderful thing about science. So many amazing discoveries have been made, but there is still so much more to find out. If you like finding things out, how about having a go at next week's question?
4: Hi, I'm Danny in Alaska, and I'd like to know about quicksand. Why do people get stuck in quicksand, and how can they get back out? Thank you.
0: If you think you know the answer, or you have a question of your own, drop me a line to week at thenakedscientists.com. But now, back to the studio.
1: So if you think you know what causes people to get stuck in quicksand and how they should get out again, let us know. Just drop us a line to question of the week at The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by NakedScientist.com this is the Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. We're gonna head back now to Cambridge University's Cavendish Labs, where Ben's with David Williamson, and earlier on in the show they set up a huge air rifle and they shot a bullet at a thirty six centimetre long tube of fat like gelatin to see how fat you would need to be to stop a bullet. Is what Connor suggests correct. You need to be about two feet wide in order or two feet of fat in order to stop that bullet. Ben, what's going on?
6: Oh, yeah, hi, Chris. Uh, Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're just going to go in now. I'm going to see what has happened to our tube of gelatin. So, uh, should we go in?
4: Yeah, let's go. We're
6: getting back towards the target chamber now, and I can see there's bits of gelatin all over this box. Not only has this bullet hit it, but it's totally shattered the tube. What's happened here?
4: Because we're outside the room, we couldn't actually see what happened. But even if we would have been inside the room, we still wouldn't have been able to see because it happened so quickly, it's faster than the eye can discern. But fortunately, we were using one of our high-speed video cameras to record the process. And if we play that back in slow motion, we can see exactly what happened to our target.
6: So can we have a look now?
4: Yeah, sure. The first thing that we see is the air in front of the projectile that had been stored in the barrel. has been pushed out of the way as the projectile went down the barrel. And that whoosh of air has deflected the gelatin at the entry side, so
6: it's just caused a bit of a distortion on the sort of the first edge of the gelatin, and that's just the air being
4: pushed out of the barrel. Yes, it's just the whoosh of the air has distorted the gelatin. The next thing that we see is the ball bearing has entered into the gelatin, and behind the ball bearing, a conical cavity has opened up. This is the ball bearing pushing the gelatin to the side as it goes forward. If you'd see a duck swimming in the river and the conical wake behind it, this is exactly the same thing, and material's been forced sideways. And we can actually see the force that's been applied has broken the perspex tube that's containing the gelatin, and we can start to see cracks forming within the plastic.
6: And that's amazing. You can actually see the the whole thing shattering as it goes through. And do we know how fast it's going through there?
4: Initially, the ball bearings travelling around 400 meters per second but by the time it reaches the end of the tube it's traveling at 200 meters per second
6: so 36 centimeters of gelatin has
4: has halved the speed of this but it
6: still certainly hasn't stopped it
4: oh certainly not so we could make that rudimentary guess that maybe we'd have to double the length before we'd be able to bring the ball bearing to rest within the gelatin
6: so this would be the equivalent if we're talking about fat of having 60 centimeters of fat all the way around you
4: yeah that's right you'd probably have to be around two meters wide before you'd be able to be bulletproof
6: (laughs) well that video is really cool can we take a copy
4: yeah it's done in a digital format so it worked quite well for your website i think
6: okay excellent we will put that online at www.thenakedscientist.com all that remains is to say thank you ever so much to dr david williamson no problem and back to you chris
1: so there you are, an unfeasible two metres across. So simply put, you'd need to be extremely fat indeed to stop a bullet. So that's not an excuse, though, to start piling on the pounds, no matter how much you like chocolate. So that high-speed video footage is going to be available on our website, and you can find more wonderful experiments. They're all there at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science.
3: Right, I think it's just about time we wrapped up our teaser question for this week, which was, the question was, when were fingerprints first used to establish the identity of a person? And our winner is on the line right now. We have Bob Coate. Hi, Bob. Hello there. When do you think um, fingerprints were first used then?
13: Well, after you said we'll take the nearest answer, I took a stab in the dark and came out with 1580.
3: Right. Well, actually, you are the closest answer because everyone else was coming far too recent. But, in fact, you're still quite a way off. It was, in fact, in the 7th century. And according to the records of an Arabic merchant that whenever anyone took out a loan, the debtor's fingerprints were attached to the bill that the lender kept. So it could be used as legal proof of the debt if the debtor denied it. But you were close enough, which was fantastic, which means the price... Will be coming you away. So, great news, so,
1: so we've got Steve Gaskin, who is from uh, Right Angled CSI. Steve, what's um, Bob won?
5: Yeah, well, basically, what he's won is he's won uh, an experience, and I understand he's from a school. He's won an experience for uh, up to six children uh, in a laboratory setting for half a day's. Uh, action-packed CSI experience, which will be totally hands-on.
1: So, Bob, which school is it that's going to benefit? Because you've won on behalf of your school, it looks like.
9: Oh, that's wonderful. It'll be over the moon. It's uh, St. Thomas the Apostle uh, Secondary
5: School in Peckham.
1: And do they have a fume hood? Because I understand, Steve, you can do some more exciting experiments if they've got a few basic laboratory facilities.
5: Yeah, just really to whet the appetite of students, we've just uh, perfected uh, a procedure, and it's called Sealed with a Loving Kiss. And uh, what we want them to do is to analyse some lip prints uh, in their entirety, and also with some lipstick on. So it's a new procedure. So uh, your school, Bob, will be the first uh, first students to experience that.
1: (laughs) And I'm sure that will go down well with the kids. That
5: will be quite interesting, as it's
13: an all boys school, so that might lead to (laughs) some laughs. laughs.
1: I don't know. In this day and age, anything goes. Bob, indeed. Well done. Thank you for winning, and thank you very much, Steve Gaskin, for donating that wonderful prize. Two happy people. Well, that's about it for this week. Join us next time when we'll be exploring the science of supervolcanoes. In other words, eruptions so big that they could end life on Earth. And in fact, they nearly have done on several occasions. Plus, we'll also be hearing about the recipe for disaster, in other words, the ingredients that add up to an earthquake, and asking, are we any closer to predicting when the next quake's about to shake? So if you've got any questions on either of those topics, or you just want to say hi, and we really love hearing from you, then do drop us a line to chris at nakedscientist.com. And do drop by the Naked Scientist web forum. You can find that at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum for a really invigorating chat about science. Until next time, goodbye.